Hi, I am Erica T. Worth, author of the Indigenous Literary Horror uh, novel White Horse, which is out now with Flatiron Macmillan. And it is about Carrie, who is an urban Indian woman who loves heavy metal and loves horror, but despises her mother because she believes that her mother abandoned her when she was two days old. And when her, uh, her cousin Debbie discovers an ancient bracelet of her mother's and uh, Carrie touches the bracelet, um, her mother's ghost begins to haunt Carrie and a monster invades her dreams. And Carrie decides that she needs to find out what happened to her mother after all. Um, and some of the inspiration for this novel is urban Indian life in Denver, Colorado. And it's also just, you know, my love of heavy metal and horror, which was something where I went to school in Idaho Springs, people loved. And it's also a love song to old Denver. Welcome to another episode of Dead Headspace. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my friend, Brennan LaFaro. Say hello, Brennan. Hello, everybody. And my other friend, Erica Robbins. Say hello, Erica. But today we're going to call her something different because our guest is also named Erica. What are we referring to you today as? Just going to call me E to keep it nice and simple. Say hi, E. Hello. (laughs) And today uh, we're talking with a wonderful... Nailed it. Um, we're talking with the wonderful Erica T. Worth, author of White Horse. Say hello. Are we calling you Erica? Yes, call me Erica. Say hello, Erica. <laughs> hello. <laughs> what got you into horror? You know, it's funny because I actually was on some some other podcast. I can't even remember it now because it's been such a whirlwind the last few months, but... <clears throat> we were talking about this and what our gateways were. And in in some ways, like I was really just a classic nerd, you know, like it was probably fantasy initially. Like I loved elves. I loved, you know, uh, portals to other worlds, like anything, anything like that. And I still do. Um, But after a while I started reading horror and I started reading science fiction and then, um, and of course, you know, I had a long Stephen King period, like like all, all of us, right? Like I was just like, oh my God, the Stephen King guy, my God. Um, and I would read anything paranormal, especially, right? And then I got to college and I got to PhD school and they just ironed it out of me. It was just like, you know, oh, if you're a serious writer, you don't write this stuff. And I really internalized it. Like I thought I was this like strong personality but I remember saying, you know, I want to write my my thesis on Stephen King. And I just, just laughed out of the room. And I did. I started, you know, teaching creative writing and writing and publishing. And all of my book was books were quite dark. Um, but you know, I wouldn't wouldn't read quote unquote genre. And then I I started reading it again. Um, and let me know if this is too long-winded and you want to get into more of this later. But no, no. I started, you know, keep going. Okay, or stop. <laughs> no, please yeah. keep going, keep going. I I started I missed it terribly terribly I missed the elves and um I started reading fantasy again I was reading Lev Grossman and I started reading science fiction I started reading I read Rendezvous with Rama and I was like oh my god you know and then I finally started let myself starting let it started letting myself read horror again and it was just magical because I have kind of a dark background I love The Shining I was just watching it before the show and um, I love the book as well. 
And, you know, my father was, was white. He was an alcoholic. Sometimes he would say kind of racist things. It was, it was painful. I had a very mixed class and race background and or cultural background. A lot of natives don't like the word race because they're citizens of particular nations and that's cool. Um, but I, so, you know, that serious literature did appeal to me at a certain point, right? But what horror allowed me to do was take all of that dark material that I've been writing about that I'd experienced and kind of get that some of that magic back, but in an adult way that really fit me. Um, and it's not to say that I wouldn't write fantasy or I wouldn't write science fiction someday, but I have to say horror just is a good fit for me. It's just deeply satisfying on some level. So, I am very curious. How do you think that, for lack of better words, taking a break from genre uh, and almost forcing yourself into a literary circle impacted how your writing is now versus if you had allowed yourself to just feel it the whole way through? So I would never, I would always say like, this is what I say to my students. And I even like have a, a lecture that I've done at certain like, you know, literary spaces, which is pulling from every genre. So in other words, you know, I, what I love about speculative literature is overused as the word is, is that it's so great at world building. Like if you can build the kind of world that you'll see in Asimov's work, right? You can build the world of like Wichita, Kansas in 1930, right? So that's something to take from. I also have to say the crime writers, they're freaking great at plot. They structure, they know what they're doing. And, um, you know, if you can, if you're having problems with that, read that. I will admit, I think everyone should read really great literary fiction because, right, they care about language, they care about depth of theme, they care about uh, dialogue, inner monologue, care, you know, depth of characterization, complex characterization, rather. So all of that stuff is, is stuff I don't regret reading, and I think everyone should read, right? I think we should all be like, we like our genre, but we read outside for a variety of reasons. Um, but sometimes I regret it because I went into academia because it seemed like the most viable route. But there are times in which I'm like, you know what? Mm, maybe I would have been happier writing kids books on the side and trying screenplay in L.A. Uh, but I think you can have regrets about anything. I, I will say what I do like about it is I've learned a what I do want to take away from it and what I don't want to take away from it. And they can be extremely um, the word is squeamish about reading anything that isn't um, literary and by, and again, they don't even seem to know what literary is. They just, they just, if you ask them, if you push them, they'll say, well, it's good, it's quality. And if you push them, they'll be like, oh, it's language. And so that that's what I know I don't wanna be. I don't wanna be fearful and squeamish and I don't wanna not read and write the things that I really love. I, so I know I've got the things that I love, right? That I think are skill sets that I pull for them. But there are also things that I'm like, mm, that, that's exactly why I'm not <laughs> there anymore. So, yeah. You know what? You uh, We had put up a post earlier about, um, you know, see if anybody had a question to throw at you. And you answered some of them, but you did it in 240 characters or less. So I'm going to give you a little more room here. Um, Brian McCauley, who is just one of the nicest people in horror and a, and a hell of a writer, too. Uh, he says, White Horse Rocks, and he is also curious to hear what the literary horror label means to you and whether you still feel free to explore other genres you love like sci-fi and fantasy in future work. Yeah, I think um, 
he's not just like, I can't wait to read his book and it's killing me. It's like sitting there glowing on my TBR, right? You know, um, and so, and he's such a funny guy. He's just like very funny and like, he's punchy, a and I just, yeah, and he's just nice, you know, he's supportive. So, and I love that question because I think that I've noticed people, like I said on the thread, I've noticed people in horror can get really like about that, uh, about that label. And I, like I said, I think it's because it's been used against them. Like, oh, it's not literary. Um, and I think the thing to remember is the thing that I ask people in quote unquote literary, which a better word for it is either realism or drama or postmodernism, right? If they really like this kind of like clever aesthetic that's like kind of choppy, anti-narrative is, okay, what is literary? And if they can't define it, then you can say, it is depth of theme, complex characterization, characterization, and attention to form and language. And you can apply that to anything. Mm. And I think commercial fiction is just, it, if it's purely commercial, it's meant to entertain. But you can do both. You can do, uh, like, for example, Stephen Graham Jones. I have a conversation with him next week, which is what I was trying to refer to in my jumbled way um, to Brian. I have a conversation with him next week at Tatter Cover. And he's postmodern in form because he's completely anti-narrative. He's literary because he he's you know heavy investment in language, but he's absolutely um, a horror writer. So right, he's he's in the genre of horror, and the the rules of realism right are, you know, the rules of the world as we know them are the rules. And Stephen suspends that. He's got the the witches. He's got gosh um you know elk vengeful elk right elk creatures magical elk creatures right so he he does kind of a lot of things so he's like a perfect example of somebody who like is crossover in a number of ways and you could argue that he's also commercial because he's been a new york times bestseller so i think you can only pull from all the things that you love figure out who you are as a writer right and then try to just kind of funnel that into what what you do in the best way you can my favorite author for if we're gonna say you know uh liter um oh my god you said literary right 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 <laughs> uh sorry brain fart yeah anyways <laughs> my my favorite one and i talk about him all the time is uh peter straw he definitely fits that narrative of uh everything you just said but i before we got off track i wanted to say you talked about uh isaac asimov and uh he's got a forward i'm just trying to show you the video Got a forward in a 1968 anthology, uh, Harlan Ellison's Dangerous Visions. And that was, for anyone that hasn't read it, it's um, sci-fi. Uh, and it's um, it's a stepping stone for anthology, so it's definitely worth it's not It's not really horror, but it's absolutely worth a read. Um, Erica, why don't you, uh, sorry, E, why don't you take us away? Sure. Well, you just mentioned the tattered cover in Denver. Um, I like screamed out loud because I've only been to Denver once. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to recognize anything she's writing about. The only thing I wanted to do when I was out there was go to that bookstore. So I just wanted to comment on how cool that was to actually see it in the book. Um, but then speaking of historic Denver, I know you've talked about this on other podcasts, so feel free to skip over this question if you're like, nah, I'm sick of answering this. But I was just curious if writing about historic Denver was kind of like you making a little time capsule in your own story to make sure those things aren't forgotten. Yeah, I mean, look, all cities change, you know, um, 
you know, change is just part of life. Um, but I guess in my brief time in this earth, I, that is the greatest mug ever. Um, <laughs> Wait, what was it? <laughs> oh, shoot. I said, thank you, but I was muted. It's got little bats on it. <laughs> it's a big mug. Um, it is. <laughs> that's great. Um, yeah, it, it was like that because I grew up right outside of Denver um, and we went all the time and the old tatter cover was in Cherry Creek, right? Which is so opulently fancy and expensive now. And it, it was just this in like wonderland. There's no other way of putting it, especially when you're like 12 and you just want your dork books, right? So I'd go with my dad and we'd walk up just countless sets of ginormous stairs. I can't even describe to you the, the size of these, these, you know, sections of each part of it. And I'd sit there for hours, you know, looking at these books that my dad may or may not buy me, right? Like trying to read as fast as I could. And then the new ones are so cool. The new one on um, Colfax is great. And yeah, I especially the White Horse. The White Horse is an Indian bar. It started in 1930. It became kind of an Indian bar, I guess, in the 50s or 60s. And um, it's it's a real bar. And it's one of these places that, yes, it's a bar, but it's also um, it was this Native American like, like crossroads for generations like every native i meet in denver if they're from this area at all will be like oh my god one time i rescued a baby from there you know, like it's just this bar and i remember i was going there with um my partner for for a couple of years before it closed down finally it's so sad um but it was just like exactly like you see it in the um in the novel it's just this sort of charming decrepit abandoned place that you just knew was right on the precipice of disappearing. So yeah, I wanted to, to show a little bit cause it's set in 2016 of the Denver, like right before boom, real gentrification. So yeah. That bar, not, it's not crumbling. It's still in existence, but it remind two things. It reminded me of my dad would always go to the VFW in my hometown and in, in uh, Massachusetts and, and, like I was in my young 20s and there's not, you know, that's not a place you're going to pick up girls. I liked it because there weren't like a lot of people there. There's a, me and you like the same type of music. I think you probably are more on the heavier side, but I'm big into rock and roll from the 60s and 70s. And like, I could just play that, have beer, be close to home, play pool, and then call it a night, you know? And um, I just wanted to comment on like time changing. I read about my hometown too, because last time I walked there, um, it was weird. Like uh, I live in South Jersey now and have for years, but the playground I grew up, like as a kid played on, it, it's literally like they demolished everything. There's a fence around where it was. Uh, there's, there's houses everywhere. There used to be a big, huge w wooded area where we could, where the kids used to play and I grew up in the nineties. So it's fun. Cause like we didn't have phones and all that shit. Uh, we, we would just stay out all day and all night. It, it's different. And it's only, 20 years so 2016 that's still i mean a lot can happen in that time so i'm curious um the little we've talked about white horse this is a two-parter first off i'd like it if you could give us the elevator pitch for those that haven't read it but i'm curious what's the most um how do i word this what's the most cherished it could be a scene. It could be a character, uh, a dialogue. What is the most, if you had to focus on one aspect, what's the most cherished thing of that book for you? So so uh, mm -hmm. elevator pitch and then cherish whatever. 
Yeah, let me sort of wind into all those things. I, yeah, the elevator is right. It's indigenous literary horror, and I am always really flattered when people compare me to Steve Graham Jones. But I like the more traditional structure. Um, but I do have these, as you know, like poetic flashbacks. Um, so essentially, the lo- the longer long line log line right is, um, you know, Carrie's an indigenous woman of mixed um, Mexican Indian and American Indian heritage and then um, she's also white and she's very urban her family's extremely urban like mine been urban for generations and she despises the mother she thinks abandoned her right when she was two days old um until her super sweet well-intentioned white cousin debbie finds her mother's bracelet and it's also a family heirloom it's kind of magical she touches it her mother's ghost starts haunting her um including like a sort of an evil bigfoot type guy um named the lofa he's called the lofa and he, uh, she decides she has to find out what happened to her mother after all. But um, yeah, you know, I think um, I would say that, you know, I do like heavy metal in the sense that like I grew up with it. But when you're talking about the VFW, you are talking about kind of like that same kind of dive bar, Indian bar, like those gritty kind of places where we grew up. And, you know, what you're talking about, like CCR, all that stuff, that's classic yeah. native music. You know, like everyone's dad. And that. Oh, God, it's so great, right? And I still love it to this day. And they always played it in the White Horse. And um, I have to admit, when I was growing up, I probably was more of an indie rock and hip hop guy. But I, I came back around to, to liking heavy metal over time because I could see what it was doing. And, and I just, it, just, it just yeah. sorry to interject, but I just want to oh, say please. to add on top of that, how the VFW and the White Horse in my head are kind of like an al- amalgamation of that scene. Um there's just like old townies there and some of them were, you know, veterans. Most of us weren't, but they would just talk about yeah. like things, how it was before I was alive yeah. or when I was young. So like, that's what, that's what your, your bar that you just conceived. I, I had the one that I grew up with literally throughout my whole childhood. Cause it was across the base, this massive baseball field where kids would go there and have pizza and shit. But like the parents would also drink and then I drank there and, um, I love when books do that. Like I got to explore your world and not even on purpose have kind of mine hold hands with yours and books like that last longer in my heart than, you know, others. Yeah. I think that the, you know, the thing I was going to say about, you know, it's so crazy when you, as you get older, even when you're just in your twenties and then thirties, forties, you know, beyond, you know, these places that you were that are like decimated, it's your way of processing you getting older, your mortality, and also your sense of like, oh, you know, this, this, this whole, you know, world and this whole universe, like it changes rapidly and it's wild, right? But I think that, yeah, I think for me, um, I, I think that the, the more specific you can be with, with your universe and your book, the more people are going to kind of, you know, see themselves in it just because there's going to be that human level of attachment. Right. And, and I think too, if you can, like, I always say to my, my creative writing students, you know, like, look, you know, I understand you want to be universal, but it's almost like when you try and you're abstract instead of concrete, it's like trying to make someone happy by yelling, be happy at them. And they're just going to be scared. Whereas if you're like, Hey, there are free Turkey sandwiches in Simpkins 204 they're going to be happy because that's specific. <laughs> but yeah, I'm trying to think of the cherished and most cherished, you know, I think in some ways I, the darker scenes are less the scary scenes 
And on some level, I do kind of perversely um, cherish them or the poetic flashbacks because that's the death of me as a poet is those those scenes, those flashbacks where the main character is thinking back on this character that she feels super guilty about because the character OD'd. And there's just something I think I, you know, it's probably the wrong answer, but I think about who I was as a poet and those are the death throes. And so, um, and it's what makes it a non-traditional narrative novel in some way. So I have some tenderness around them, those scenes. Well, that to me, that says like that, well, that's why it makes your voice un unmatched because no one can write like you if you're actually writing like yourself. So that's why only you could write White Horse. So I don't think that's the wrong answer. No, I respectfully disagree. <laughs> um, Brennan, uh, you want to go or, or E? I'll, I'll throw in real to. quick. I, you know, I, I think it's funny that you kind of started that off, Erica, with, I don't know if this is the right answer. I mean, how could it be the wrong answer if it's what you, if it's what you kind of want to shine a light on, uh, so to speak? Um, now, one of the things that I kind of wanted to ask about was the character's choice in music and if that kind of revolved over to you and then you showed up in a fucking Slayer shirt. So <laughs> I ask that question, but I am curious about uh, how that kind of love of metal, like if you feel like whether it's the music or the lyrics uh, impact your writing style at all. That's a great question. I think, um, like I said earlier, metal was all around me and Megadeth and Slayer and uh, Metallica were king. Obviously, my main character likes metal and understands metal better than I do, um, if that makes any sense. But And I was kind of an indie hip-hop guy just because I was so internal and weird and I want to go to college. And so I was like reading dork books under the, under the display case to get away from people at lunch. So I, I I found metal to be like kind of like oh it's too much and these these guys who were like oh yeah you know and I just was like oh Lord God you know, um, but I came around to it because I think a it was just everywhere and I came to understand there was like a dead piece that I, I'd given to the New York Times I didn't they were interested and then they didn't ultimately take it and it was essentially about like I I kind of understood over time why the people around me had loved it so much beyond just the time of it. It, it, it was because you have to be a virtuoso to be uh, to play metal. Precisely what I love about indie hip hop and indie um, alternative rock in general is that it's a bit DIY. And I'm not saying they don't have their geniuses. Of course they do. But you have to be a fucking genius to play guitar like that. The lyrics like of, of Metallica are like their great hooks. Megadeth is he's just a fucking weirdo. Dave Mustaine is a weirdo. Um, that I went to go see them play um, recently. And I was like, I'm not sure anyone plays guitar like this. And the dude actually writes for um, music magazines on his technique because it's honestly that unique. And I just, I started to, once you kind of get away from that like extreme level of noise and cacophony and rage, and you start to see what they're doing, you can see why it's so emotionally cathartic and you can see why it's so brilliant. And you can see why these guys back home and these women too, um, and everyone, um, however they probably would identify now, were like, I, I love this stuff because I want to believe I'm going to get out too. And I want to believe I'm exceptional too. But yeah, so it probably has affected my writing because I, I wanted to repeat some of the rage, desperation, um, you know, 
and, and, and passion and skill too. Yeah. That I felt like I eventually really did see with, 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 uh, with heavy metal metal. That's awesome. So on the topic of heavy metal, I got to ask, do you have a favorite band? It is definitely Megadeth. And it's funny because my boyfriend's like, he'd actually put that in his novel. I think I'd talked about it like, oh gosh, that's the one heavy metal band I have to admit I kind of like. And I think it influenced him, but now he's like, no, you took it from me. And I'm like, look, buddy. Um, but I actually really like them. Whereas he's like, Bleh, you know, um, but I love Megadeth. Like I, I genuinely listen to it a lot, but I have to admit Metallica does have these like kind of great, great hooks. But look, I'm, I'm all, I'm at heart. I'm kind of a Pearl Jam Nirvana guy. Um, the chronic, you know what I mean? And I love like people like MC Solar. So, you know, yeah. or Mr. Kitty for that matter. I get to ask, um, Geronimo, we're not going to say how he plays a role. If this is a spoiler, let me know and I will cut it out. But why, why Geronimo? Was he a, uh, particular influence in anything in your life or did it just make sense for the story? both i mean i'm of chiricahua apache descent my family that section went up and down from the united states to mexico traditionally and then they ended up in these box cars in northern mexico in the mountains and then porfirio diaz was kind of in the pocket of the american government and was driving out the pockets of those folks some my relatives some stayed some were able to escape i guess i wish i knew more some got out ended up in texas um and they i think they intermixed with um irish folks that's why my one of my great great grandfather's names is, is riggs hmm. and um then they married into chickasaw and then they married into white cherokees and my my uh, chickasaw family is also black or african descent and then um, my, but my Chickasaw ancestor really loved them because they were like her husband's ex-husband's people once she even divorced them because she married lots of people. Um, and her husband's name was John Wesley Riggs, I guess. But even when she divorced John, um, which I don't think their marriage was particularly long, long enough to have a baby, she would go down into these boxcars in Mexico. And supposedly she uh, participated in the Mexican Revolution, which I really love. I hope that story is true. That's cool. And... So yeah, but I think in the end, um, Geronimo, although arguably is a very distant relative of mine, because he's also Chiricahua, and that's my band of uh, Apache, he was also, he's just a mythic figure. He's like crazy horse, right? He, yeah. <laughs> you know? He or Tecumseh. Like, yes, exactly. Seriously, they're like, like just untouchable. Well, and see, the main character, like romantic love is absolutely an anthema to her. Absolutely not. She will not do that. But Geronimo, part of the biggest wound of his life, so Carrie, it was her, her best friend growing up. Hmm. One of Geronimo's wound was there were Mexican soldiers that killed his, I think, his first wife and children. And he never forgot it. It drove him for the rest of his life. So I was also really fascinated by that, you know, and, and also by the idea that supposedly he had these sort of magical um, skill sets, you, you know, arguably, supposedly. So, and since I'm hmm. a speculative writer, you know, it was compelling for me. That makes sense. Um, e. Sure. So I have another question and this is, it may be a little too similar to Pat's. So we can, again, skip it if we need to, but um, again, just listening to you on other podcasts, I thought it was really interesting that, well, 
I should specify the two I listened to. It was Talking Scared and Terrifying Tomes of Terror. I listened to both of those today to get ready for this recording. Um, I really like how both of those hosts commented on your ability to write like really, really good, gritty reality stories, Um, obviously mixed with the paranormal and spooky stuff, which is always great. Um, But you definitely don't shy away from going into darker topics. So I was just curious if there's a particular scene or element of White Horse that you wrote and you sat there thinking, I really hope readers feel this one. Yeah, I, I I definitely wanted um, when the character is kind of having to take accountability for how she's treated her cousin. It's a terrible moment for her because even though she's strong enough to be like, oh, okay, yeah, okay, that mm, that is on me, right? Um, it's still painful because <laughs> if you love someone, you and this is probably one of the the. She has she has very few figures in her life, like very few people that she loves. To realize mm, you've kind of taken them for granted for decades is a miserable thing. So I was hoping people would feel that. And on the more um, speculative level, yeah, look, you know, some people have said that it's not scary at all. Sorry, Erica, it's just not terrifying for me. It's not frightening for me. And then some people um, have said that it is. And I worked on that really hard because I was new to this. And I wanted to evoke that. I thought, I think that's a compelling emotion. I think it's kind of the core of horror. And I mean, we could probably go on for hours about why it's valuable. Is it valuable? What it does, you know, why it defines the genre. But I I actually started looking at films, right? You know, books are, of course, primary. But I wanted to see on a visceral, easy visual level, like what scared me and why. So I started like writing down, okay, this scared me. This is why it scared me. This is what happened. And I thought about, someone actually pointed this out the other day, Paranormal Activity and The Conjuring. These are just some of my favorite. I can watch them compulsively, right? Again and again. I I just love the I love the way they're built. I love the art of A, subtlety, and B, slowness. Um, Because that's when you're actually scared. When someone's like, I'm like, I'm not scared. Or like, I'm like, ew. But I'm not like, profoundly frightened and i know it's kind of i think it's funny because in the horror community people are really into the slasher and they're really into body horror and they're in, really into this stuff but that to me is not profoundly frightening it's more like oh gross or whoa or run or like it's fun. but like uh, to profoundly wonder would this creature eat my soul where would my soul go <laughs> even if it's entirely speculative that is terrifying that is actually frightening so um I guess I am, I, but I get such a kick out of that. Like, I, I can't help it. It's a fantasy geek in me that wants to go back to those portals where elves live. And are they evil elves? Are they goblins? You know, I, I just, I'm always going to be compelled by that stuff. And so, yeah, I, I worked very hard on writing scary scenes, whether they scare people or not. So. <laughs> yeah, I mean, everyone's got their own fears. So that's, you're not going to please everyone. Um it's well written it's a good story but all right so this next part um just tell me if you want me to cut this sensitive to some not for others i know i gotta say this just for someone that might be like well he did this or that just the way we live the world we live in now um is the word is the word indian inappropriate for 
and I know it's different for everyone. Is it inappropriate for non-Indigenous people to use? Because I, I, I might slip up and say that. I just wanted to hear your opinion. I can't remember what we talked about. We talked about this off air, but we talked about something similar to this with Wabgishi Grice. And um, I personally feel like it's really important to, we trust him, we trust you. So we listen to people that we trust. And um, it's important to hear what you guys get to say because you're going to, that's how you make connections and make bridges to understand. And ultimately, isn't that, what we read books for so you can understand and hopefully have some peace with people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think what you're doing is very primary. I, first of all, if you were like, wow, you're the only native I've ever read, then I think, <laughs> you, know, like, you know, like Nito, then that is that's the problem right there. You've already, in my mind, it really doesn't matter because you've already solved the problem, which is, you respect the art, you respect that Native people are capable of it, that, you know, we all, we're all doing it differently. We all have different opinions on that. And you've had WAP, right? There's, and there's a bunch of us now. There's V Castro, there's Shane Hawk, there's um, it's obviously Stephen Graham Jones. And I think that's what's so cool. I think people are finally getting to that point and that's all that matters to me. Every single native would disagree about that. I was called really derogatory versions of that, of being Indian, like when I was younger, and I'm not even going to say them because they're that viscerally gross. Um, but I will say, like, everyone disagrees. Like, if you ask my partner, he's like, Indian, say Indian. If you ask people in Canada, they will not say that. That is absolutely a slur as far as I have been able to tell. Now, I'm sure they would disagree with one another. Um, they disagree a lot. <laughs> but uh, we all disagree. But, you know, they tend to say things like First Nations, right? Um, That's what Wob said. He said First Nations. I forget what the specific tribe is. I, thought he was I don't even know if that's the right word. Yeah, no, a lot of people, yeah, some people don't like that word. Some people don't. I mean, look, when natives are around one another in the States, it probably depends on where you're at. Like Navajos or Diné. And if you're in Diné you know, they'll be like, hey, what tribe are you? You know, but they are probably not going to use the word Indian. In Oklahoma, we use it. In Denver, we use it. In South Dakota and North Dakota, we use it. Um, in Canada, I rarely hear it used. It is derogatory. And it, it really depends. Some people think of Native American as very academic. Um, that's why my boyfriend doesn't like it, because he thinks it's just too it's just too clean and academic, and it doesn't really describe how we talk to one another. The word skin has gone out of fashion, but sometimes they'll be like, yeah, man, he's a skin, which is, you know, an old, probably is a riff off of, you know, bad word. Um, but it, you know, I've heard it used. I it's it's gone out of fashion. But you know what I mean? Like everyone disagrees. Like some white people, like you point out that they're white and they they cry, they get angry. Some people are some white people are like, I'm white. Um, some people are like, I prefer Caucasian. <laughs> you know, like that's cool. You know, like yeah. I will call you a Caucasian if you want. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. some people are like, look, I'm Greek and I'm proud of that, you know. So I think that's a thing. And then obviously natives like disagree. Some people will talk about um, since we're sovereign nations, a series of sovereign nations, we should be referred to in that way. A lot of people in Mexico, though, we have not, I do not believe they have been granted um, sovereignty as far as I know, maybe bits and pieces in the law. And so a lot of indigenous people in Mexico will get over here and be like, I'm indigenous, right? And yet it's so obvious. And like, how how can you not 
qualify that as a race. You know what I mean? Like, so this is a complicated, really quite miserable issue that I think that there are people, as you know, in my community who want to exploit people's ignorance and actually desire to do the right thing by trying to refine it all into something like that's like either or there's these authentic Indians and you can tell why and you should only listen to us and we should be the only ones and the only voice. Mm. And for me, that's exactly what Alexi did. Um, he was a predator of another kind, but I do, I do think it's predatory behavior to try to winnow it down into it's only me. I'm the only one who can tell you. And you know, you can tell who we are by these defined things. Like, no, we're human beings with complicated, complicated situations from Alaska to the tip of South America. So I feel like yeah, we're all going to have a different answer, you know? So yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's why I said it in the beginning. And I think it's important, especially, I want to flat out say, especially as a white guy, a straight white dude, like I'm a cis white guy. I think it's important that other people hear me ask that because it, it really rubs me the wrong goddamn way when we can't even ask a fucking question. I'm not saying ask something like, why is the N word wrong or something that's obvious stuff. Obviously that stuff don't talk, you know, those are obvious, but like with this, we should be able to talk about it. But if you do it on platforms like Twitter, where it's like text-based, you don't see the people, how they react. There's a lot of um, unstable people on there. They'll twist everything. My whole roundabout way of saying that I think it's important that we talk about this. And I like, this is why I like not just focusing on books because books are made by people and people are made of a lot of colors, a lot of, I don't mean that by skin color, uh, that would have come off wrong. I mean, a lot of colors, a lot of layers. Um, and, and this kind of actually pulls me back to, I want to go back. Don't make me lose track of the, the um, question about indigenous folks with interviewing. That's the important thing that um, we talked about before recording that I would like to come back to, but, Something that White Horse really opened my eyes up to, and it might be obvious to a lot of other people, but you cover how there is all all different kinds of uh, Native Americans. And, you know, for my people, I mean, I'm Irish, Italian, Scottish, other stuff, but there's uh, Irish that moved to, I want to say it's Guatemala. Um, There's... um, Puerto Rico, uh, yeah, Puerto Rico. Uh, one of my friends is actually there right now. There's super white Puerto Ricans um, in Mexico. He was telling me that the further away you get from Mexico City, they have a different look than in Mexico City. Uh, and then in your book, White Horse, they you talk about how there's black Indians and how they were treated poorly. How there's if you're brown, then you're going to be treated poorly. I think that's really interesting and i haven't read that in another book and i'm from the east coast never even been close to your side of the world and it's just stuff that i never thought of and call it whatever you want privilege or whatever but i think that's important to talk about um because a cop or whoever sees you know a brown indigenous person you're gonna get treated like shit for two different reasons um so I'd like to know if you want to talk about any personal experience or, or anything that kind of made you really want to focus on that. Cause it seemed like that was all designed on purpose and you had a, a, a really powerful reason for talking about that. So is there any commentation that you commentary that you want to yeah. uh, talk about? Let me, let me, 
slaps it down basically like if you read wobs on the moon of the crust of the snow the reason why everyone's anishinaabe or white is because that's a reservation in canada that's fairly isolated right and so such a good book right god i know that's sequel the sequel's coming out soon i know i know i'm excited but yeah if you if you that's that community right and those folks have a very specific history and way and if you talk to people in guatemala right you're talking about um you know oftentimes people who are mayan they still speak mayan and uh different parts of mexico and then you know in de Efe or um uh, mexico city you know this is a very cosmopolitan area right so you're going to have like loads of people from different parts of the world in mexico coming in Denver is like that um, too. It's certainly not Mexico City, um, but it's a big, extremely bustling, now gentrifying city with an extremely brutal history when it comes to Native Americans. So traditionally, right, you have the Ute, the Shoshone, um, the Cheyenne, I believe the Arapaho, right? And I actually have a room in Meow Wolf, Denver, the convergence station, if you know what Meow Wolf is, that sort of starts to encapsulate that, but in a cool future kind of way. And in any case, they, the history of Colorado, they were particularly brutal. It was all about like brutally, um, you know, cleaning people out, genocide at any cost. You have things like the Sand Creek Massacre, which is incredibly hard to read about. It happened like just a few miles past here. My cousin, who's different tribes, um, who's adopted, he's a, a black native, he's Cheyenne, Arapaho, and Nez Pierce. His, some of his um, ancestors' relatives, like, obviously died brutally, horribly at that site. But because it's such a crossroads in the middle of the country, in the middle of all these different parts of Indian country, people coming up from Mexico, in, in Texas, into Colorado for work, people coming, Lakota, Dakota, Nakota, coming in from South um, Dakota and North Dakota. I, I met what we called at the time Chippewa people who are now Anishinaabe, right? That's their word. Diné people or Navajo people coming in for work. Every once in a while, someone from the Northwest, right, would, would filter in. That was much, much, much more rare. So I grew up with Oki mixes um, who are like Choctaw, but white looking, completely white passing, not light like me, like just white passing. Bene, who are like, you know, it's a kind of a goofy phrase. It's not useful in some ways, but full-blooded Mexican indigenous people. And I was kind of a mix, right? Dad was white. I'm some Mexican indigenous. I'm a black Chickasaw. I'm a, a white Cherokee. And, you know, I met people who were connected to the tribes they descended from. I met people who weren't. And it created um, a kind of urban Indian culture. And that's the kind of culture that my family and other families have been a part of in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in Winnipeg, in Houston, in Dallas, right? In different parts of Mexico that I don't even really understand um, for generations. And it's, it's a culture that is at least somewhat acknowledged. A version of that called the Métis exists in Canada. It is not acknowledged here. It is literally just you are from a reservation and you have family on the rolls and maybe they move to the city versus no, you, you're not native at all. And and I and, and so what I wanted to do in White Horse was be like, that is not the reality of my life. That is not the reality of, of so many lives that I know. And a lot of Chicanos and Chicanas have said, why do we not have this Métis status like a lot of Métis have in Canada, where in Canada there's First Nations and then there's urban Indians, right? For lack of a better, for trying to shorten the conversation or 
explanation as short, shortly as I can, um, urban Indians who the government tracked, they did not track them as often here. And so, because, right, they were afraid they were really Mexican or really black. And so they didn't want, you know, to let people claim to be urban Indian and they wanted to tax them, right? And if you, if you wanted to tax someone, they had to be white. And so on the reservation, they were Indian off. They were not, even though that was not the reality. And so I wanted to show that urban Indian culture exists in this country and has for a long time, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, true. There's a lot to break down there, but we, you know, you, we talk about reservations a lot and for, I love history for those that are interested in it. You, you probably heard of the trail of tears. Um, Andrew Jackson, I'm going to be very careful with my words. He is one of the most fascinating presidents, but he's also a crazy motherfucker. Um, He adopted an indigenous boy, but the reason was, is I believe he killed that boy's parents and he was kind of put in a weird position where that was the way to go. But um, he's the one that led that. I believe it was, it was Jackson, but. um, It was like people were like hated Indians. No, he was just, I mean, probably, but he was just very Trump-like. So what he wanted to do was like all of his rich friends were like, we, we want the land that they're on. And this land in the South is like great for plantations. So he's like, okay, let's get all these Indians either A, to relinquish their citizenship as natives. So, oh, you know, you can stay in Arkansas, but you no longer have your land. Mm. Or you can go to Oklahoma. You can go on this brutal, brutal trip and we'll escort you there because the savage apaches and comanches are gonna potentially you know hurt you because you're kind of assimilated now but well but you know if you die along the way sorry not our problem right and then there's this promise of this land in oklahoma but jackson was just trying to give money to his land and money to his buddies yeah he was a piece of shit i just looked it up uh 60 people that he um moved and i don't remember how he died but it's stuff like that that isn't taught um, in regular school. And another thing, because Brennan, Erica, E, and myself are from uh, New England. Um, Brennan and I grew up right near Plymouth. Uh, so I know I, I, I'm fascinated by the Wampanoag people. And um, King Philip's War is the bloodiest per capita. And and I'm not, this isn't from memorization. I had to look it up to remember. But um, it says in terms of population, King Philip's War was the bloodiest conflict in American history. It's also known as like the first uh, Indian War. 52 English towns were attacked. A dozen were destroyed. More than 2,500 colonists died. Perhaps 30% of the English population of New England. Um, that's pretty much just like a cliff note in a town that's like 30 minutes away from Plymouth. Um, that's fucking crazy. The stuff that we aren't taught as young kids, uh, oh, yeah. I think it's it's absolutely batshit crazy. Yep, and, the fa- page in my- yep. and the fact that like now there's the ability to hear from people that we couldn't previously. Like I would have never heard of most of the people, even white people that I, I know and read now because of the internet. And I think it's really important for everyone that hadn't gotten a chance to say what they wanted. Cause I learned a lot from white horse. So I'm going to shut the fuck up. Brennan or E, do you have anything to throw into this? 
I, I know the the you know you mentioned that we were talking um, earlier before we started recording, and one thing that Erica said that I was hoping that Erica you would talk a little bit more about was uh, the notion that when people talk to an indigenous author or really just an indigenous person, that they might be so concerned about you know misusing a word or causing offense that maybe they don't say what's on their mind or maybe they don't even initiate that conversation. Um, and, and you kind of hinted, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you kind of hinted at just understanding that people make mistakes and the importance of context. Uh, and I wonder if you could just talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, number one, you know, as somebody <clears throat> who is indigenous, who's raised in the West, we're talking about East Coast tribes, we're talking about Puerto Rico. I was straight up told they don't exist. The Taino are dead, uh, they don't exist. The East Coast tribes, anyone who claims that they're East Coast, it's, they're a liar, they're not a real native. Um, anybody who's black and native, even though I grew up with a cousin who is black and native, oh, if they say they're native, that's not true. You know, um, and <laughs> I feel like I, I, I'm angry at myself and my environment for making those assumptions and like taking them in, even though I think I'm so open-minded, I think I'm so much better than that. So none of us are exempt here. None of us are exempt. You know, um, I've seen, you know, and Twitter, of course, is a fucking wasteland because you'll see people be like, you know, they'll be like, well, I'm black. And, you know, from what I understand, like all of, all of the Native Americans own slaves. That's what I've heard. And I'm like, oh my God, you know, no, no, no. That was just the Southeastern native tribes and they do like some of them have not like the Cherokee nation they have taken accountability for that their um their citizens are black they are white they are native it's all about like genealogy in their case and do you have a family member on the rolls including people who were enslaved because the idea is that these people were a part of the culture that blood doesn't matter that blood is a sort of creepy european fiction right so they've just said we're inclusive in, in all these ways. Now, other tribes have not. Other tribes have not taken accountability and they won't give what's called the freedmen um, full citizenship. So we're all culpable. We're all, we're all accountable. Um, I don't mean to say it's all equal, whatever, because there are people who are malevolent, right? And we all know it. And you're like, oh, what a, why would they say that? That's so cruel, right? Or sometimes if you say something and someone's like, I need to correct you, you can't weep afterwards and you can't get angry, right? I personally try to be like, okay, oops, I assumed a wrong thing. And I move on from that, right? Oh, I learned here. But what I don't want, what scares me a little bit is this landscape of Twitter. And I guess I know Twitter's not the reason, it just happens to be the algorithms, the forum, the time. But it does seem to create a culture of like dragging people and, you know, taking something out of context on purpose, because I think for a while there, people would very rightly point out something like, oh, this this was an egregious thing. Let's not do it again. Or this or this person's an actual pedophile or something like this. Right. Something terrible that should be called out, talked about someone who sexually assaults, et cetera. But now it's just become this like maybe I can make my career by garbaging someone. And I feel like, especially indigenous people, we're just starting to make um, this thing that I've been waiting for for 20 years. I've been writing articles for BuzzFeed, LitHub, you know, I've been, you know, making connections, reaching out to people, asking if they need things, right? Because I've wanted to 
see lots of different indigenous voices at once. And there are people in our community who I feel like they don't want that. They want it to just, again, just be one voice and they'll drag and drag and drag and drag and harass or punish people for just making a completely stupid mistake that they're willing to be like, oh, I learned here. I'm sorry. Gosh, I'll never do that again. And I hate that. I really hate that environment because what it does is make people hesitant to publish us, put us on podcasts. And granted, yeah, there's some great indigenous podcasts too. But you know what? For example, the horror community, it has lots of different people from lots of different places, all supporting each other. We're going to make mistakes. And what I like about it is we're all coming from different places and we're all having a conversation. So I don't want to see a, a situation where people are like, oh, I'm so afraid to make a mistake. I don't want to have an indigenous person. Oh, I'm so afraid of their trolls. I don't want to have an indigenous person. That is really a mess. I hope that we all just say no to that and like try to be as sincere as and educated as possible. Right. And just say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I'm going to move forward with this person because I like their book and they're interesting. And you can tell I'm a professor because I'm so freaking long winded. But anyway, <laughs> no, Erica, I like your book and you're interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't, <laughs> you don't have to worry about this show ever saying no to you because of a bunch of jackasses. Because um, apparently I got a "Hey jackass, come at me" face, <laughs> so it's all good. Um, I did before we start uh, doing outros. I had to touch on the fact that White Horse was a Target book club book and how like my wife loves target we go there you know at least once a week and uh you know the big screen behind the i am assuming it's designed in mo the same in most targets it's like a book section they got the toys for i was gonna say for adults because it's not children's toys they're like do you guys know what i'm talking about they're like uh, horror action figures and stuff like that Oh, okay. Okay. It's like Alien and Predator and all that. It's um, like the nerdy toys, like all. Okay, the yeah, toys. nerd toys. Yeah, yeah, nerd <laughs> toys. There you go. <laughs> I got some nerd toys too. I got Bubba Hotep right there and Walter White. But anyways, um, there's a big screen behind there, and I just one day I, I was too slow for my to get my phone and record. I wanted to send it to you, but there's this big ad for your book, and I was like, that's so fucking cool. And I I, I go to my wife. I'm like Tara. I know her. I talked to her. And then I saw your book in the uh, book club section. And I just want to know, like, how does it feel? Because that's pretty cool in my eyes. And I'm guessing for Ian e Brennan, too, because that's that's like a massive chain. And that means right off the bat, there's going to be thousands of people reading your book. You know, I never got to see that display. I'm so sad I was touring. And then it was always like, some target far away from me. I'm so sad. So I got to see on TikTok. Um, there's a Latinx book talker. Gosh, what does she call herself? Everyone has these kind of fancy names for themselves. And so it just makes me forget what, they, what their actual names are. Um, she's so cool. And she's so neat. And she had actually gone in target and, and showed it. And it was super cool. But yeah, what it was, was something that, you know, it was kind of like, I think because my book has a traditional structure, um, target picked it, you know, um, I, you know, like I said, I, you know, people can have uh, the narratives they want, but what happened was I'm a Native American author who, you know, had, like I said, this very kind of like well plotted out book. And so even though a horror book is not normally your book club book, it's why it was November's book of the month, right? It's why it was Good Morning America's like little buzz pick or whatever, because 
it had this kind of like very compelling traditional plotted structure. And so, um, yeah, what happened was they didn't, my editors were kind of hemming and hawing. They were kind of going back and forth about edits. And suddenly it was like, we accept these changes. Let's go. And I was like, oh, what's happening? Like, can we have a Zoom? And I'm like, we can have a Zoom. And so they're like, your targets, you know, November book of the month pick. And I was like, holy shit. Um, because I also love Target. And I saw this like TikTok um, about how white women love Target. I'm like, you clearly do not know women of color because <laughs> every indigenous or black or Asian woman I, woman I know and man loves to just hang out in Target and buy shit. Everyone yeah. does. Yeah. Uh, have I gone to Walmart? I have. Of course I've gone to Walmart. I don't, I'll go to Walmart even though it's it's god-awful. They're all god-awful. Corporations yeah. are god-awful. Go communism. But, you know, um, everyone loves Target. It's fun. They're good at what they do. And, of course, it was rad to see it in Target. Like, I actually hmm. bought a couple of the um, books. And I signed 6,800 what's called tip-in pages. I My wrist was, like, going to hell. I had to ice it. And Christ. I sat there for hours every day listening to your podcast, to, to uh, oh, wow. Neil's podcast, everyone's podcast, you know, just figuring out like what was out there, what was this podcast, you know, while I signed page after page. Luckily, I have a very fast signature, you know, um, and then they, you know, tip them in. And, you know, it's sad. I cannot I, I tried to order um, some of my own signed Target um, cause they looked different and I couldn't, it didn't come. It wasn't, one was broken. The spine was broken. And oh then the other God. one wasn't signed. Yet. But someone found them. Like someone else was like, Oh, I found a signed copy in target. I'm like, God damn it. I want one of my own target signed copies. <laughs> what was the page called? You said tip, tip pages. In. Tip in. What's that? It is literally as it sounds like. So when you have a book club, they'll buy a certain, you know, chunk. And they'll they'll send it to their book club, the Target's book club. And I guess you sign up for Target's book club, which I didn't know about. And you you sign like thousands of just individual pages, and then you they send it into your publisher, and they tip it in to the book and steal it into whole thing. Is that not wild? Yeah. You know, what's so funny. I was on small presses all of my life. Okay, I have published books with small presses. I am. I am like, I will get my own blurbs. I will do my own shit. Thank you. And so I get, I sign all my tip ins. I take them. They're like all these boxes. I take them to the, the USPS, UPS. And then about a month later, one of my editors is like, oh, are you ready to have them pick your, your, your boxes up now? And I'm like, ready to have, what do you mean? They, Macmillan just has someone to come by to pick them up. But I'm such a small <laughs> press kid that I had no fucking idea. So I'd like, carry them all myself to the USPS a month before that. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, I can't forget uh, Rob, Rob Otone, Robert Otone, um, friend of yours. And he's, me and him are becoming buddies actually. And he showed me his really cool picture of you and him. He showed it to me today. Uh, you guys were in New York for, you were on a, your book tour and there was, uh, I don't know her name. Uh, you don't have to name her, but there's also an editor, and I was just asking about it. That, that guy loves you. He's like, she's literally the best. So hard to disagree with that. Um, just shout out to Rob. He had a question, but we're we're actually uh, running down now. Um, I did want to ask about the last thing, which was Good Morning America. I don't want to uh, not ask how the hell was that. That was surreal, and you know what? I had to like now they. I suppose if we're like 
if I were like a Reese pick or a Jenna pick or whatever, which I don't think my protagonists are spunky enough for that, but I, a girl can dream, but um, they don't fly you in. So you have to do it yourself. And I had done it and I thought I did a really good job. And they're like, no, try to do it another way. Try to do it this way, that way. So I had spent all day just trying to get it right. Cause you, it has to be like, I think it's 12 seconds. You, you have to do 12 seconds. You have to hold your book and it's a whole thing and you film it yourself. And I'm not a film guy. I'm a fucking writer. And so I did the second version of it. it took me all day. I was like, oh man, this is the jam. Like I, I got it. No, they went with one of the earlier ones. <laughs> but it was still incredibly surreal to see yourself on Times Square in Good Morning America. And, and you could tell the 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 uh the people were like, wow, like you know how they have those hostess noise host noises or host voices. And they were like, wow, yeah, sounds indigenous, horror, weird, wow. You know, <laughs> you could tell they were like, that's, I will never read that. Yeah. You know, so, but hopefully some people did, right? I think that was my highest Amazon score day, obviously. So that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, I know what you're talking about. You can definitely tell what people kind of are just not. <laughs> Not on the same page. Like, what is this? What the hell? You know. So <laughs> let's jump to what are you currently reading? Uh, we'll start with you, Erica, then E, then Brennan, then myself, or Brennan. If you want to go last, that's fine. Yeah, if anyone knows me, they know I I love Grady Hendrix. I I love Sylvia Moreno Garcia. I love their work. Grady could write a book every two weeks, and I just read Grady Hendrix right until one of us was dead. Um, but actually, you know, who I'm reading now my indigenous brother from another mother, which is Stephen Graham Jones, because I, like I said, I have a conversation at Tatter Covering with him next week. And I'm reading the second in the, uh, something Witch Lake series, they're calling it, uh, Stacy something. Anyway, don't fear the reaper is what I'm reading because I have a conversation with him. So I gotta, I gotta fucking read it. I get it now. Wow, I'm slow. He's he's talking about Blue Oyster Cult the other day on Twitter. <laughs> Fucking slow. Uh, yeah. Uh, e. Well, I am currently rereading White Horse. <laughs> I got the book of the month copy, so I I had to. I read this when I first got it, and I had been kind of skipping a lot of the book of the month picks for at least seven months and then I saw yours and I immediately the cover just rules that's what drove me in first and then reading the little blurb that they put and the little icons that kind of give you a hint of what's to come I was like oh yeah I need that one so thank you for breaking my dry spell with book of the month I you are welcome I freaking love book of the month isn't it cool it's very cool. I'm I'm just like, I'm so picky. And I know I shouldn't be that picky because they have plenty of really good thrillers and mystery. But I'm, I'm just like, mm, I don't know, something's got to really tickle my fancy. But as a whole, I think it's a really cool setup. So if there are any listeners that don't know what book of the month is go look it up. It's fantastic. I agree. It's like such a cool thing. And I know my grandmother had like had some some version of it. I have to say, y'all, you have to read RF Kwong's um, Babel. I forgot that. I just finished that. It is mind-blowingly good. It's it honestly I'm so jealous of her. She's 26 and a genius. I hate her. I love her. So how do you so spell good. her name? I believe if I'm not saying it wrong, I believe that's right. Um I believe it's just RF Babel. Um, but yeah, I've got it right. RF the initials K U A N 
G, I believe Quan. I'm probably murdering it in some way, but um, I think I'm largely right. Babel deserves everything it's getting. It is it is huge, and it's just a compulsive read. I, I just it's so good. It's a it's a um a fantasy novel, but it's just oh god, it's so good. Dark academia vibes, as you know, people on TikTok would say. That's pretty cool. Um, Brennan, what are you currently reading? Um. I have been working through uh, Dennis Lehane's Kenzie and Gennaro series. I'm on number two right now. I read Gone Baby Gone years ago, and I'm going to have to get back to that because it's like now I'm now, now I'm like deeply entrenched in these characters. And Erica, you had said earlier that like, you know, people who want to learn plot and structure should read these like crime writers. And I, I 100% agree with that. I would even add to it like, the amount that some of these guys, Lahane being one of them, can achieve with dialogue is just the the amount of character work with the you know inner monologue you know laced with the dialogue. It's just crazy. It's 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 unmatched. Um, I'm learning so much about how to write competently from this dude, um, and I am also reading "Woe to Those Who Dwell on Earth." It is uh, John Lynch's first short story collection we will have him on next monday to talk military horror among other things how about you patrick um i actually just finished white horse today um i loved it by the way but you want to talk about he's from massachusetts uh an older crime writer george v higgins the friends of eddie Coyle and kogan's trade which ended up becoming a Ah, shit. I forget the title, but Brad Pitt and uh, James Gandolfini's in it. It's like 2007 movie. Um, and Ray Liotta's in it, too. But, yeah, you want to talk about a guy that can write really, really well that I, I want to... We're going to talk to Dennis in a couple months, and that's... I want to hear what he has to say about that guy. Because um, if you don't read crime in... I guess if you're not from the area, maybe... He's one of those names that maybe you don't even know who he is. Um but I'm going to be starting John Lynch's uh, other book. Um, I didn't have it written down. Can you help me out with it? It's a splatterpunk military. No, I think I'd like to just watch you flounder. No, it's called the warrior retreat. Thank you. Dead air is <laughs> not good, man. Well, it can be comical. So yeah, I'm starting that one tomorrow. Um, where can people follow you, Erica? What's uh, that? Where, where can people follow you? Oh, on the wasteland, otherwise known as Twitter. Um, I am on the TikTok, awkwardly, middle-agedly dancing. I love Instagram, probably the best. Um, it's all just E T um W U R T H or or actually no, that's right. I've changed it to E R I K A T W U R T H. I might kill Twitter. Um, I'm not on I I am more of a, a viewer on TikTok than a than a um somebody who posts. But Instagram is is what I like the most, so that'll probably keep. So I would say if you want to find me, find me on Instagram. Awesome. E, where can people follow you? Sure. Um, best spot is probably just my blog, and my name is spelled with a C instead of a K. <laughs> um, but I have links to all the random social accounts I'm on. Um, because I've been so sick of Twitter, I've been really focusing my time on a phone app called Litzy. 
I don't know how many users there are, um, but it's like an Instagram, but specifically for bookish people. Um, it's been around for a while. I've never even it's heard of it. Way, I like it. I think it's really cool. It's way less glitchy than some of the newer social media phone apps that have come out recently. Um, but I, I think it's interesting because you can add books to your like book stack. You can add little reviews. You can add blurbs and you can add quotes. So depending on what your interest is, you've got yeah. some options. And you can also tap the title of a book and like literally scroll through a feed that's just dedicated to that book. So something to check out if you guys want one more thing on your plates. <laughs> that sounds interesting. Uh, you can follow me at PR McDonough um, on Twitter. Um, Instagram, you can follow the show at Deadhead Space. Brennan, where can people follow you? Brennan LaFaro on most things. Uh, I am not on Litzy, but I may go on there because it sounds really cool yeah. and i am not on the tiktok but pretty much everywhere else um erica do you have any final thoughts no i was say uh join me brendan on the tiktok for the awkward dancing um you should <laughs> yeah you bring no, the music, I just... i'll bring the dancing <laughs> i will do it um i guess final thoughts i don't know i hope I, I love foreign literature. I love where it's going. It's fun. I love these. I love these conversations. You guys have been great. And I can't wait to be on with Brady Hendricks. Um, as everyone knows, I think he's fabulous. Um, and look, read indigenous literature, read, read, try not to read it because it's a check mark. you know, find, you know, browse, browse some of my articles, you know, Google my name and, and see the articles that I've written and, you know, be like, well, this one looks actually interesting to me. Not like, oh, I feel guilty. I should probably read find the one that looks fun to read and read that one and then maybe read another one. Hmm. So, uh, so that's what I, I guess, I, I guess I do have a final thought. And and then the other final thought is thank you guys. Cause this has been wonderful. So. Uh, e. Oh yeah. I just want to say it was great to meet you. I know we've engaged a few times on Twitter, <laughs> but it was just nice to be able to talk to you face to face virtually. Yes, you too. Brendan, I want to save you for last. My final thoughts are that it was um, a real pleasure talking to you. It, I, I wish I, I wish everyone interacted like this, um, but you're never going to get that when there's too many people. Especially you're not seeing their faces, seeing their interactions. I can't imagine most people would say something to a screen that they, you know, as opposed to seeing the person because, like. You're like, hey, that's a real person. They have feelings, <laughs> you know. So I really do appreciate that you're being you you are being vulnerable with what you're um allowing us to talk about. So for that, I appreciate it. Um for White Horse, I appreciate it. I hope people pick it up because it's a damn good book. And uh we just generally like talking to you. Um, I'm gonna get to you in one second, Brennan. Two episodes from now, like Erica mentioned, we are gonna have Erica return to talk to Grady Hendrix, we're probably not going to do a lot of talking. It's just going to be you and Grady for the most part, I'm sure. Um, we love him too. I mean, the last book, the newest house, uh, the the How to Sell a Haunted House. I seriously think that it can stand on the same shelf as like Rosemary's Baby. It's it's really fucking good. Um, Brennan, final thoughts, sir. Yeah, echoing a lot of yours is I hope people will buy this book, read this book, enjoy this book. Uh, I I absolutely dug it. Uh, it's and, and Eric, I can't wait to read what you've got coming out next. No pressure oh. or anything like that. But now normally we do 
use final thoughts to say, hey, you know, we enjoyed your company. You were awesome. You know, we hope you come back. But I'm so psyched (laughs) that we actually have, you know, like that is already nailed down. We don't even have to like throw it out hypothetically like, hey, see you in a couple of (laughs) weeks. Yeah, no, I, I can't wait to come back and I can't wait to talk with Grady. I, I it's an extreme privilege. I he he's sort of like the superstar for me. Um and I will talk about what I'm on doing next. I just signed a, oh, another contract yes. with Flatiron for um, one oh nine room nine oh four. So it was originally Cycle Man TM, but now that's room nine oh four. So all right, so book us Thanks for uh yeah, just uh have us booked for that one <laughs> for the next book. Um yeah. I, I laughed, but that was a serious comment. <laughs> uh, I shouldn't have laughed. I can't help it. I'm a goof. <laughs> next episode is 188. That's when that guy, John Lynch, he writes about military, uh, Spider-Punk military, but he focuses on military. There's a reason for that. He was in the military. We're going to talk all about that next week, and we are going to be joined by Kevin Witten, a.k.a. Well-Read Beard. Uh, you have seen his, if you watch the video version, or audio version, you've heard his ad with Erica's um, White Horse ad probably a lot last season. So, uh, yeah, as always, many choices in podcasts. Thank you for making us.